October 31, 1517. Martin Luther posts his 95 theses. October 31, 1999. Catholics and Lutherans sign a joint declaration on justification by faith. The Protestant Reformation, one participant in this conference, tells us, was just a misunderstanding. October 31, 2016. Lutherans commemorate the opening of Protestantism's 500th anniversary year. Pope Francis I travels to Sweden to join them and says Catholics and Lutherans have begun a common journey of reconciliation. A series of images rush before my mind. Martin Luther, standing in 1521 before Emperor Charles V and what Will Durant has described as an awesome court of princes, nobles, prelates, and burghers, boldly declaring, unless I am convinced by the testimony of sacred scripture or by evident reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. Then, according to the earliest printed version of his speech, comes these stirring words. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. As a result, Luther will be declared an outlaw. Only Frederick of Saxony's protective custody will keep him from probably becoming a martyr. Fifteen years later, another scene. William Tyndall is about to pay for <coughs> a vow he made to a Catholic. This particular Catholic had said it would be better to be without God's law than without the Pope's. Tyndall had responded, If God spares me ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of Scripture than you do. Now, having fulfilled that promise by publishing an English translation of the New Testament and a good share of the Old Testament, he is about to face the punishment for this crime by being burned at the stake. They tell us his last words were, Lord, ope the king of England's eyes. Open his eyes. Another 19 years pass. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley have been condemned for denying the doctrine of transubstantiation. And they too will be burned at the stake. 
They kneel and pray together. Then they are chained to an iron post. A bag of gunpowder is hung around their necks. And the fire is started. Latimer says to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. What a shame. All of this and more. Sacrifices enough to fill several volumes of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Over a misunderstanding? At least that's what I heard on NPR. When they interviewed one of the Catholic participants in the discussion leading to the historic signing of the Augsburg II, the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification signed by representatives of the Roman Catholic Church and the World Lutheran Federation. This was the person who said the Protestant Reformation was just a misunderstanding. His explanation was something like this. They didn't realize that we believed that our justification was by God's grace. And we didn't realize that they believed that it was important for Christians to do good works. Was the Protestant Reformation just a misunderstanding? Now that Lutherans and Catholics have issued an impressive joint declaration on justification by faith, and now that the Pope has personally participated in the 500th anniversary Reformation celebration, is the Reformation all over? Is Protestantism passe? Should we all just go home to Rome? First, I must say that things aren't always quite what they seem. If you made it through this joint document with its many qualifying statements, you would see that there is still a significant difference between the Lutheran and Catholic understanding of justification by faith. Justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. Even that was too much for John Paul II or at least for his spokesman. The Vatican fired off a reaction paper that seemed to rain on the parade staged by representatives of his church, which signed the document. After a polite paragraph that acknowledged that the Augsburg document represents a significant progress in mutual understanding and affirmed that a high degree of agreement has been reached, the Vatican called attention to the remaining differences between the two faiths in their understanding of justification, going so far as to negate the Declaration's affirmation that the Lutheran doctrine of justification no longer falls under the anathemas of the Council of Trent. The Vatican says... For the Catholic Church, the message of justification has to be organically integrated into the living church and the sacramental life, calling specific attention to the sacrament, 
of penance through which the sinner can be justified anew. Although admitting that the document shows a high level of agreement, the Vatican contradicts the Declaration's suggestion that the differences separating Catholics and Lutherans in the doctrine concerning justification are simply a question of emphasis or language. But what if the churches achieve perfect agreement on justification by faith? Would this make Protestantism passe? To answer this question, let's look at some of the questions of various of varying importance, which the Declaration itself says need further clarification. Three of the items are the relationship between the Word of God and church doctrine, ecclesial authority, and the sacraments. I would suggest that at least two of these issues boil down to one word, authority. And the, the other one pertains in the final analysis to control. By its control of the sacraments, the medieval church is able to control the lives and decisions of princes and pe uh, peasants, but ultimately the control wouldn't exist unless the church was believed to have authority. So even questions regarding the sacramental system are tied up with the issue of authority. Justification by faith, essential as it is, I submit, did not cause the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation included the proclamation of the doctrine of justification by faith, but that, I submit, was not the cause. A month or two before the famous 95 Theses, Luther had hoped to provoke a debate by issuing 97 theses touching on justification by faith. The reaction was a gigantic yawn. It did not launch the Protestant Reformation. Nobody paid much attention. Furthermore, the doctrine had previously been proclaimed by priests who remained in good standing with the Catholic Church until their dying day. Good Catholics, men like Jacques Lefebvre and Thomas Wittenbach. No, I would suggest that the basic underlying issue in the Protestant Reformation was the question of authority. Luther didn't become a Protestant when he issued the 97 Theses on justification by faith. In my opinion, he didn't even become a Protestant on October 31, 1517, when he nailed or didn't nail, scholars have argued about this, uh, the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. He became a Protestant, I would suggest, in Leipzig during the lunch break between two debating sessions with Johann Eck. 
Before Leipzig, I would characterize Luther as a reforming Catholic, an unrefined Erasmus. He had written a conciliatory letter to Pope Leo X and had agreed not to discuss the controversial issues he had raised until a German bishop should reach a decision regarding these matters, as long as his opponents likewise refrained. But the egotistical, sophisticated Dr. Johann Eck, confident that he could verbally massacre this country bumpkin, this son of a peasant, challenged him to a debate and secured permission for Luther to take part even though he was under the ban. However, when Luther showed a superior knowledge of both the Bible and early church history, Acts salvaged his position by calling Luther a Hussite. Luther quickly denied that he was a Hussite, denouncing the Hussites as schematic. But during the lunch break, Luther had second thoughts. When the debate resumed at 2 o'clock, Luther took the bull by the horns, announced his agreement with Jan Hus on certain issues, and thus I suggest he became a Protestant. He had gone to lunch a reforming Catholic and returned resumed the debate as a bona fide Protestant. He had made a definite break with the papacy, and although justification was an important issue in this discussion, it wasn't the issue that made the break. It was the authority of Scripture. Eck had said the Pope was Peter's successor and Christ's divinely chosen vicar. Luther demonstrated from Scripture and early church history that this wasn't true. Eck countered that all true Christians had from the very beginning acknowledged that the Pope's authority came from Christ himself, but that it had been denied by the heretic John Huss. So, he said, Luther was proclaiming Hussite ideas. It was at this point that Luther denied being a Hussite and then changed his mind over lunch. Before lunch, Luther repudiated Huss for being a schismatic, after lunch, he declared that Huss had proclaimed some scriptural truths and been, had, had been wrongly condemned by the Council of Constance. Says Philip Schaff, here for the first time, he denied the divine right and origin of the papacy and the infallibility of a general council. His main point was this, scripture is the supreme doctrine authority. Superior to popes and councils, neither of which was infallible. Luther's concluding remarks were, I am very sorry that the learned doctor only dips into the scriptures as does the water spider into the water. Nay, that he seems to flee from it as the devil from the cross. I prefer with all deference to the fathers the authority of scripture, which I herewith recommend as the arbiter of our cause. Of course, he didn't win the debate. He had contradicted himself, and that's a no-no in debates. But 
Luther had rightly acknowledged his theological kinship with Huss. As Luther would later tell the Diet of Worms, John Huss had told the Council of Constance that he was willing to recant anything unproven by scripture and sound argument, but not otherwise. Same basic point. Similar statements would be made by Protestant leaders following in Luther's wake. For example, John Calvin said, the only thing I ask is that all controversies should be decided by the word. This is the basic principle of Protestantism, sola scriptura. On all, this principle hang all the others, including justification by faith. When discussing... Latimer and his colleagues, Ellen White says, the grand, grand principle maintained by these reformers, the same that had been held by the Wallensees, by Wycliffe, by John Huss, by Luther, Zwingli, and those united with them, was the infallible authority of the Holy Scriptures as a rule of faith and practice. They denied the right of popes, councils, fathers, and kings to control the consciences in matters of religion. The Bible was their authority, and by its teachings, they tested all doctrines and all claims. This conviction cost Luther, excuse me, didn't cost Luther, cost Huss, Tyndall, Latimer, and Ridley their lives. And Luther could have paid the same price if he hadn't been for the intervention of Frederick of Saxony. Huss died because he proclaimed the Bible supreme, superior to church councils and to popes. And Luther risked his life making the same declaration. Luther, Wycliffe, Huss, the Wallenses, all were battling for the Bible. Ironically, their opponents also claimed to believe the Bible. But, they said, the church was its only authorized interpreter. The Bible meant whatever the church said it meant. And the Catholic Church still teaches this. Even today, several Catholic websites are devoted to opposing the idea of sola scriptura. Almost exactly a year before Augsburg II, almost a, a, a year before Augsburg II, Pope John Paul II reiterated the idea in Fides et Radio, proclaiming that the Bible alone was not a sufficient guide in faith and morals, and that we need tradition and, teach, and the teaching authority of the church. Denouncing a form of fideism that he calls biblicism, which tends to make the reading and exegesis of sacred scripture the sole criterion of truth, he said, Scripture is not the church's sole point of reference. The supreme rule of faith derives from the unity which the Spirit has created between sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church, 
and a reciprocity, which means that none of these three can survive without the others. His successor, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, later Benedict XVI, also held a similar view. Did you realize that this isn't the first time that Catholics and Protestants have papered over their differences on justification by faith? Tied in with the question of authority, as we have seen, is the question of power. We've noted that the sacramental system was a major means by which the church in past ages exercised so much power. Note that the sacraments, especially the sacrament of penance, made up an important part of the Vatican's objection to Augsburg II. Even during Martin Luther's lifetime, representatives of Protestantism, including Philip Melanchthon, and Catholics led by Cardinal Gasparro Contarini signed a joint declaration on justification by faith. Looking for Lutheran military support against the French and Turkish empire enemies, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V called a theological conference concurrent with an imperial Reichstag at Regensburg on April 27, 1541. The formula the Protestant and Catholic theologians agreed upon seems to me much more straightforward document than Augsburg II. Although it would later be rejected by both Martin Luther, who called it a patched-up thing, and by Gian Pietro Carafa, the future Pope Paul IV, who would determine the final direction of the Counter-Reformation, participants at the conference couldn't know that and felt that they had resolved this question to the satisfaction of both sides. Contarini was ecstatic. The compromise said we're justified by faith and grace through Christ's merits, but that a justified person must produce works of charity. Nevertheless, the talks broke down. The agreement on justification by faith was followed by a deadlock over... Transubstantiation. Here we see a parallel situation to Augsburg II. An alleged agreement on justification is essentially negated by disagreements over the sacraments, which, as I have suggested, flows into the issue of power and authority of the church. At Regensburg, the essential question was, can the priest, by saying the words, hoc est corpus meum, actually create the body of the creator. What power? Not just physical power over the creator, but power to dispense what Catholic theologians had referred to as the medicine of immortality. The means of dispensing God's grace. Today, the sacramental deadlock has a similar implication the power of the priest through the penitential system to provide the grace for the sinner's justification. Protestantism hasn't bought into this concept. Not even the Lutheran delegates so eager, eager for friendly relations with the Mother Church. The Vatican is right. The gulf that separates Lutherans and Catholics 
even on the doctrine of justification, is not just a misunderstanding. I would suggest that it's a yawning chasm when one considers the implications of the sacramental system. And yet I would submit that on the basis of sola scriptura, mainstream Protestantism has sold out. I see here some of my former church history students. When I taught church history, we discussed the major intellectual movement that helped form the body of tradition, which Pope John Paul II, like the Council of Trent before him, put on a par with the scripture. It was the attempt of early Christian thinkers to make their theology intellectually respectable by adopting, adapting it to the philosophical groupthink of the time, a modified form of Platonism. This incorporation of Platonism into Christianity was a good thing, Catholic theologians tell us. Later, when Neo-Aristotelianism was in vogue, Thomas Aquinas would synthesize the two, recasting the Augustinian Neoplatonism into an Aristotelian mode. In contrast to what so many Catholic thinkers have said about the role of philosophy and the formation of theology, Martin Luther believed philosophy had a negative impact on Christian thought. John Paul II was just as enthusiastic about uh, philosophy's importance to theology as Martin Luther was antagonistic to it. John Paul II said, the study of philosophy is fundamental and indispensable to the structure of theological studies and to the formation of candidates for the priesthood. One of the forms of latent fideism he denounced is the disdain for classical philosophy from which the terms of both the understanding and the actual formulation of dogma have been drawn. Similarly, in 2006, Pope Benedict VI spoke out against de-Hellenization, the separation of Christian theology from Greek philosophy. Just as Catholicism modified its scriptural theology in the light of classical philosophy, much of Protestantism has exchanged sola scriptura for scripture interpreted in the light of current intellectual groupthink. Here in the 21st century, we find the Bible once again the center of controversy, this time within Protestantism itself. As before, people on both sides claim to believe the Bible. But one side accepts it just as it reads, while the other lists a higher authority to which, through which to interpret it. Today, many people who claim to believe the Bible filter it through rationalism and higher criticism and their understanding of sciences. By the way, uh, those of you who are my students will recognize Immanuel Kant and uh, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, who were two people who had major impact in moving Protestantism away from Sola Scriptura. Um, 
Instead of sola scriptura, much of Protestantism today sees it as scripture plus science or scripture plus philosophy or scripture plus rationalism. They tell us that much of the information in the Bible isn't really true. It doesn't fit in with the current philosophical groupthink or the current scientific speculation. Maybe the Reformation really is over for mainstream Protestants. Not because the Catholics have cleared up the misunderstanding over justification by faith, but because much of Protestantism has long ago abandoned sola scriptura. This is not just my assessment. The Pew Research Center reports that only 46% of Protestants and only 37% of white mainline Protestants believe in sola scriptura. Even Pope Benedict XVI has commented on this. He said, Nowadays, even the greater part of the evangelical theologians recognize that sola scriptura, that is the restriction of the word to the book, cannot be maintained. He said this is in part the result of ecumenical dialogue, but to a greater degree has been determined by the progress of the historical critical interpretation of the Bible. Our understanding of the final crisis revolves around the issue of authority. The undiluted authority of scripture or the authority of someone to interpret, reinterpret scripture, whether that authority is the church, higher criticism, or the devil masquerading as Jesus Christ. If one has already modified his biblical understanding in the light of human wisdom, what is the barrier to yielding it to one who claims divine wisdom? In Eden, the serpent promised our ancestors we would be as gods. What could fulfill this aspiration for humanity to exercise divine wisdom more than sitting in judgment on the word of God. Whether through church authority or through rationalism. Couldn't deifying ourselves be following in the footsteps of one who said in his heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God I will ascend above the clouds, the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. A prelude to acknowledgement of the evil one himself as divine. This is not an endorsement of anti-intellectualism. You guys who took my classes will know that from experience that I believe what Ellen White said, that God can best be served by an intellectual, well-informed Christian, rather than calling for anti-intellectualism, this is a call, as Martin Luther would say, to let God be God.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.